So let's just understand a little bit about what we're measuring here. You see, there's two parts to time. What's a second? What's a measure of a pause like this? Was that one second or two? Yeah, we divide time up. And it actually doesn't matter what the date is or the year is. We're trying to understand a period of time. And the other part is, what is the time on the wall? The time in terms of it's two minutes past 11 exactly on the third beat, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's two parts to this. Now, NTP doesn't tell you a reference second. It tells you the time on the wall, the clock. It allows you to adjust your oscillator from time to time to keep your oscillator counting seconds. And occasionally it will adjust your wall clock to match the signal you're getting from all the NTP servers giving you the time. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. Jeff and I had a discussion focused on time. At the right meeting held in May, Jeff heard a talk about the Swedish National Secure Time Distribution Initiative. This set him thinking about the nature of time and some of the longer-term problems which underlie how we think about time in the digital world. Jeff, welcome back. Ah, good morning, George. Good to be back. What shall we talk about today? You know, a couple of, maybe more than a couple of weeks ago now, it was a little while ago, our colleagues over in Europe, what we call the RIPE NCC, held one of their uh, workshops. They hold, I think it's two every year, isn't it? I'm getting old and forgetful. Yep, it's two. Two every year. Well, they held one in May in Rotterdam, and there were two presentations that kind of piqued my interest. One was actually from Netnod, the Swedish infrastructure provider, and they talked about their efforts in distributing time as a national strategic service and also distributing time globally using a variant of what we'd call the standard time distribution protocol, NTP, the network time protocol, in a thing called secure network time. So NTP is quite a funny protocol, isn't it, Jeff? We'll get there. I mean, it is quite a funny protocol. We'll, we'll get there. I suppose what really struck me was regarding the time as a piece of strategically important digital infrastructure. Knowing not just the time, oh, it's about 12 o'clock, to within 30 microseconds, it is precisely 12 o'clock, are actually two very different statements. And they're looking at providing time to this incredibly fine degree of accuracy. What do you think motivated them to want to run 
a class of service that meant everybody had fundamental belief in the same time at that level of accuracy. Where is this driving to? Broadly enough, all of our digital infrastructure has time inside it. Secure web services rely on, for example, certificates, digital certificates. And if you pick apart all of the sort of fluff and padding, you get back to two very interesting fields, not valid before this date and not valid after that date. So in other words, if your clock inside your computer is wrong, someone can give you an old and possibly compromised certificate, and because your clock is giving you the wrong time, you might believe it is the real thing. That would be bad. So lots of areas have time built in. Distributed file systems. Which copy is older than which copy? We both need to agree on time. The other part of this is actually the old telephone network. It switched time. And every telephone network at the heart had this oscillator that oscillated at 8,000 cycles per second and the entire network throbbed in sync. So everyone had to agree on what was the start and what was the end of each one eight thousandth of a second pulse. I've got a memory here. In the days when I was working with European and American networking standards, there were two parts to the problem. The Americans divided their links up as if they were 1.44 megabits and the Europeans divided them as two megabits, but they also had clock signals that had to be asserted either at both ends or only at one end. And so that oh, quality, what is the frequency? What is the frequency, Kenneth, is quite oh, strong here. That's another podcast and the entire E1, T1 digital hierarchy, the entire architecting of the synchronous phone network and the weird things that happened on the east and the western side of the Atlantic Ocean and the fact that they were the same but different and never interoperated across their entire history cleanly is yeah. its own story. But, well, the point is, <laughs> but the point is the Swedes decided there were enough high-level application layer reasons, particularly in things like security and cryptography, well, that time a bit, was a value all the, of its own. There's a little bit more to the Swedes, and it's kind of why, and they have, imposed a tax on the internet service providers, very small, but a tax, and used that money to distribute time within Sweden as a service as part of the infrastructure of the country. What do other countries do? Well, interestingly, most of them walk out with an antenna, look up and find the time from your local favourite geolocation service, whether it's GPS or um, who else has one? There are a bunch of these. Galileo. Galileo. The Europeans have one. GLONASS. GLONASS. The Russians have one. And I think the Chinese. Is that Baidu are running a satellite I'm network? not sure who it is. Yeah, Baidu. Baidu have one as well. And so the answer is, well, why do you need to distribute time when you just walk outside with a piece of metal, set it up as an antenna, and just get time? And the answer is, of course, I suppose, Space is a long way away. Mm. And you're listening to something that's a long way away using radio. 
And anyone just over the hill, or maybe right beside you, can transmit at the same frequency and confuse you about what the time is. Stronger signal is the one you're going to lock onto, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So if I wanted to disrupt your time and I have a radio transmitter, I win. I just win because I can swamp it. Now, you kind of go, but that's just being a pest. Yes. But as we say, when the metal starts to fly, and that used to be theoretical until a year or so ago, these things are offensive weapons. Yeah, and control over the accuracy of time and the value of time in the context of people using these things for positioning. And stopping it being disrupted is actually important. Yeah, and it goes beyond what you might think in terms of the strategic use of time. Farmers are now using these networks to control tractor driving in the fields. If you disrupt time services and GPS services, you're actually disrupting the economy. Well, yes, it all gets a bit insidious. So the Swedes run NTS as a service. But and, and not NTP. Okay, so let's digress for a second. Yeah. And talk a little bit about how do I do time when I don't have an atomic clock. Right. And I want time to be astonishingly accurate, but the oscillator inside my computer is not that good. It really isn't. Thermals, Thermals, all these other things. The entire kernel structure, I might miss a clock tick. I might lose a bit of time. It doesn't oscillate at that higher frequency. So it's not that good. Right. Now, I can either live with that, and before the days of the internet, you did. And from time to time, a computer operator would get up on the console, what's the time? And then listen to maybe the time on the telephone on the third beep or some other reference standard and just alter the seconds on this mainframe to actually match the reference clock that's coming through. Which actually brings with it all kinds of risks because there's the possibility you drifted backwards as well as forwards, <laughs> which means time isn't necessarily incremental let's, monotonically. Let's, let, let's go there in a different, different so, speed. Back in the day, computers, unreliable local clocks, not a good basis of time, hand adjusted. We come into an internet world and the birth of this protocol that a very strange man, Dave Mills at the University of Delaware, is inexorably bound up he's, in. He's, he's not strange. He's just very clever. And hats off to Dave Mills. He actually adopted this protocol and worked hard at it. And in, in essence, it's a very simple protocol. I tell you my time. I send you a packet going, here's my time. You insert your time and send it back. Now, oddly enough, if you do this right, I've actually got four timestamps. The time the packet left my machine. If you're very good for me, you'll stamp it the time you received the packet and the time you sent the packet. So I get two readings of your time, when you got it and when you sent the answer. And then I get a second reading when I got that answer. Now, as a one-off measurement, yeah, do this constantly, not at high volume, just constantly. What's the time, George? What's the time, George? What's the time, George? And what I'll build up is a picture, pretty accurately, of the delay between me and you. 
So in some ways, it's not that dissimilar to the RTT function that's taking place anyway in a network. Right. But rather than an aspect of making flow control work, we're actually saying we want to know. What do you think the delay is across this? And, and the reason why I really want to know is I don't want to know the delay from me to you to me. I want to know the delay from you to me. And if I find that delay then if I think your time source is better than mine and I know the delay... When I say what the time is, you know the amount of delay to add for what is it when I hear it. So I can lock my clock against your clock. And the accuracy of your signal now becomes the base accuracy you believe in my clock modulated through the variance right. in the accuracy of the delay between me and you. So the internet's bigger than you and me. News at 11. Oh, <laughs> I'm not seeing a lot more out there. <laughs> no one else in this room. But what if I do the same dance with another four more people around the table? And I don't just ask you, I ask cousin Jim, Uncle Tom, Auntie Annie. I ask all of these folks. You caucus in time. I caucus across all of these time sources. And now I'm developing a pretty good picture of who's outliers and who's really locked into a good time. Because I've got the delay from each of these folk and their view of a good time. And all of a sudden, I'm now pretty good. I'm able now to lock in because I'm now averaging across this that even when the delay to you might vary a bit, all these others would compensate. And so typically what we do, typically in the, I'm cheap, <laughs> put an antenna out the door, pull down the time, typically from GPS, but depending on what country you're in, you might use one of the others, and advertise yourself as what we'd call a stratum one or similar, you know, a reference time signal. Yeah. And others are doing the same. So there's lots of these Stratum 1 NTP servers. Right. And then they send the time to what we'd call Stratum 2 servers. Yeah. And they then rebroadcast that time because they pick up the time from a number of Stratum 1s. And so you get this sort of hierarchy of accuracy going down through a global time system. It's sort of like a combination of accuracy under the delay component with distance from somebody who simply says, I know the time. Right. So there's a socialised component. I'm getting time from a lot of places and I believe time based on the difference in between them. There's the accuracy, how many different variables, and there's do I actually believe I simply know the time. So there's a few different qualities here, but the bottom line is if everyone's a good player and if everyone's socialised properly, we all cohere to a remarkably constant idea of what the time is. And the accuracy, it's pretty good, isn't it, Jeff? It's really pretty good. So let's just understand a little bit about what we're measuring here. You see, there's two parts to time. What's a second? What's a measure of a pause like this? Was that one second or two? Yeah. We divide time up. And it actually doesn't matter what the date is or the year is. We're trying to understand a period of time. And the other part is, 
what is the time on the wall? The time in terms of it's two minutes past 11 exactly on the third beat, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's two parts to this. Now, NTP doesn't tell you a reference second. It tells you the time on the wall, the clock. It allows you to adjust your oscillator from time to time to keep your oscillator counting seconds. And occasionally it will adjust your wall clock to match the signal you're getting from all the NTP servers giving you the time. So I'm not trying to correct my oscillator. I'm trying to correct the accumulator that counts the seconds coming through to make sure that it's got an accurate time of day. Okay? Right. So in this picture I've just drawn, we all rely on the satellites. There's a small number of very specialist agencies that potentially well, are playing a slightly different where, game. Where do those satellites get their time from? For all those very <laughs> special particular group of people who actually, if I remember this correctly, do a paper version almost of exactly the same thing we're talking about here in well, terms of not, caucusing not, around time. There's a lot more to it than that. So let's actually go through this a little bit. GPS gets its time from Colorado, from the Schneider Space Force Base, who run, I think, eight atomic clocks, tried to therm make them thermally stable, right? When we say atomic clocks, what do we mean? Interesting. It's something to do with atomics. It's, it's high energy physics. Well, it is. But I'd like to sort of uncover some of that. Mm. So where do they get their time from? Because... An atomic clock doesn't tell you the time on the wall. It's just really good at counting seconds. Unlike my crappy little quartz oscillator on my crappy little laptop, that atomic clock is pretty damn good. So it's the other side of the two things that are being talked about here. One is what is the legitimate civil time definition of it's midnight? And the other is how long is a second? And right. you're saying the eight atomic clocks that they're using are brilliant at telling you how long a second is. They don't tell you what the time of day is. Not so good at the time of day. So where do they get the time of day from? to know that it's today and this is the hour. Where, because it's not from the atomic clock. This yeah. kind of, we've all got to understand we're at the same level. This is, you know, the 1st of June or whatever the date is. Yeah. Now, at this point, we're in the wonderful world of standards. Oh, so many standards. So many standards. <laughs> I'd love to believe that there's a small hut on the edge of Greenwich close to the meridian with a man who has an alarm clock who decides it's midnight. But I have a feeling you're going to say it's not Greenwich. Well, to an Englishman, I have to say, you're right, but you're wrong. Greenwich has nothing to do with it. Right. It's all in Paris. Uh, <laughs> the French. <laughs> ah, the French. It is indeed the French. I think it's called BIPM the Bureau International des Poids des Mesures. And they're in charge of the standard of a second. Is this the same mob of people who have the kilogram under the a cheese kilogram? cover? 
the standard kilogram. Right. The right. standard meter. Right. In some ways, yes, like a kilogram, you have this block, I'm not sure if it's platinum or something, quite an inert metal, yeah. which because there's no other way to define a kilogram. Well, there wasn't. I believe they're working on another way of doing it. But yeah, they keep the canonical kilogram right. under, glass, it, under glass, under glass, under glass. Because until you can get a pair of atomically small tweezers yeah. and count out 60 trillion atoms of, of something, yeah. that's a kilo, we're left with this block of metal is the kilogram. So these people have determined this is going to be the first second of 2023. It's Paris. Paris, BIPM. Now, there's a bit of a problem in all this, and now I'm going to wander backwards into time and measurement. Because we've been looking at the stars and the earth and the sun for as long as humanity and a lot longer probably. Everything on life has kind of diurnal rhythms. And this dates back into studies in, in Babylon and ancient China. And the Babylonians were big on this, 700 BCE. And those were the folk who, by using astronomy and because of their mathematical base, they actually liked base 60. Because oddly enough, it's divisible by five, divisible by 12, divisible by four, divisible by two. You know, it's actually a really good number. You can segment it in many ways and not get messy fractions. Feels like the Babylonians probably should have been millipedes if they needed to have enough fingers to count up to 60. Because <laughs> everyone else went, oh, 10, you know, digits on my hand, but no, 12. And they were dividing up two things which are fundamentally different in physics the rotation of the Earth about its axis, the length of a day. And from that, we get the second. Well, 86,400 of them in well, current parlance. Well, oddly enough, we took a day, because that was the first measurement, and thanks to the Babylonians, divided it by 2 by 12. It wasn't 24, that wasn't a natural number, but we divided it by 12 and it was the day was in 12 parts, the night was in 12 parts, add the two together and you get 24. So we divided it by 24, but then comes the love of 60. You take these hours divided by 60, that's a minute. You take a minute divided by 60, that's a second, right? And so we're measuring the period of rotation. And how do you do that? Well, a sundial. You just look at the sun. And when the sun is in exactly the same angle as it was yesterday, then you've completed you've one completed completed rotation. One, one rotation, ipso facto, yeah. that's a day. And that's good enough. Now, the Chinese were going down the same way a lot earlier, actually, 2000 BCE. But again, much the same thing. Let's just measure this stuff. And the bigger the instrument, the more precise. We, because the shadow kind of moves further and you can put finer grid lines. We went to one of these static 
sun, moon, star observatories in, in Delhi, Delhi, didn't we? Yes. And they are enormous. They're so large. They have staircases built into them to get up to the measuring point. They're massive, semicircular, triangular constructions that align with the plane of rotation of the planet. They're quite beautiful. Well, they have to be big if you want to be precise. Angular error, right? Angular error, because the shadow is moving and the very big you know, observatory, the shadow will move metres yeah. in an hour. Which reduces your angular error. Right. And so, you are measuring the effect of a complete rotation or a part of a rotation. Bigger is better. So interestingly, we started obsessing on things that were almost secondary. Oh, I want to know what the time is versus I really want to know what the time is to a level of precision that only really affects a smaller group of folk like astronomers who are trying to predict things with high accuracy. And so we used the sun. And we used the sun right up to about the 1200s in, in Western Europe. It was just bigger sundials, better sundials, and the whole world was doing this. Well, you don't have to replace the batteries. <laughs> That's right. This is the sun. What about a cloudy day? Which, you know, for England was a very, very good question. I don't, you know, <laughs> all right, fair point. Yeah, what about that? Well, yes, you know, the yep. sun should be. But we'll average it out. Tomorrow might be sunny. It might be sunny. We'll get it back. So we started thinking about mechanical versions. And there were water clocks. There were clocks that burned oil. Something that occurred at a constant rate. Yeah. And by about the 1200s, because we were getting better with mechanical things, gears, precision woodwork, metallurgy. We were able to craft better tools. It must have been quite a moment for the technologists of the day to realise that their own crafted technology was now approaching or exceeding the accuracy of astronomy measuring natural phenomena. I think that might have been a real moment. We're better than the sun. Let's use a mechanical clock. Wow. Well, we never got better than the sun yet, and we're still in the 1200s to 1300s. And one of the key inventions, and I'm not even sure I can even point to one physically around me, whereas were we having this conversation 100 years ago and the scribes were writing down every word that was said, you'd see an escarpment mechanism inside your clock. And the way it worked was weight. You have this constant pressure caused by a weight on a rope that's kind of driving a wheel to rotate. And what you want is to regulate that rotation at a constant rate. And so what you do is you put teeth around the wheel and have this rocker motion, the escarpment, that allows that wheel to rotate at a fixed speed. So it's actually the pendulum subject to physical forces of gravity and its speed that is controlling the escarpment that then controls the release. It's an interesting mechanism. Jacopo de Dondi in 1364 was the first man recorded as doing this. Now, these were big devices. You didn't have one on your wrist. You didn't have one in your house. You had one in a town the village clock, you know, on the church, really, because they're the only ones that could afford it. Which probably also goes to larger was more accurate at the, de larger at the design was that they could do. It was easier to build escarpment mechanisms at size rather than at very fine growth. You need a lot of metallurgy to make it tiny. But at this point, bigger was better. Yeah. 
and, and that astronomical clock in Prague that everyone crowds around oh, once a day. Me. More <laughs> dials than you can shake a fist at. Built in 1410. Still going strong. But the issue was we started to rely on the mechanical version of time. And at this point, the kind of sundials versus mechanics started to be interesting, right? Because, yes, as this was perfected and Christian Huygens came along almost two centuries later, 1656, and instead of doing the weight and the escarpment, started to look at accurate pendulums. You see, in a pendulum, it's not the weight that's important. It's the length of the string, rope, rod, between the fixed point and the oscillating weight. They only swing at the same period if that length is exactly the same. And by exactly, I really, 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 really mean exactly. If you change that length, it swings at a different speed. You go, well, so what? Well, if you're looking at a year, the answer is seconds, minutes. So we're back at the story of the difference between what is the time in civil matters in calendar meaning and how long is a second. But this time we have a mechanism, a clock of some kind that is trying to provide both. Right. You set the clock to say it's midnight at a given statutory day or date in the calendar. You then expect that it's seconds counting is accurate. How long a second is, how long a pendulum is. If your pendulum isn't the right length, you get your escarpment doesn't release now, at the right time. If you're in Stuttgart and I'm in Munich and the time is, I don't know, 1700, the answer is, well, we differ by a second. How do we even know that we differ by a second? I can't see you. You can't see me. I can send someone running down the road to tell you what the time is, and three days later they'll tell you, but so what? So the fact that we couldn't synchronise that time didn't matter. It was a non-problem. Time was where you are measuring time at that point. It's locally defined. Locally defined until the shipping problem, the mapping problem. Right. right. Because time is a thing that also engineers into where am I? Because longitude, and there have been many wonderful books. I always liked uh, Sobel. Yes, Darva Sobel's Darva book. Sobel's book on longitude. Because, you see, why were the early maps so horrendously weird? Was actually because they couldn't measure longitude. Latitude, that's easy. Look at the pole star, do the angles, how close you are to the pole or the equator. How far away are you, A and B, in terms of around the globe? The answer is, oh, I don't know. Because in some ways, you don't. For longitude, you need time. Because what you're really trying to say is, when it is midday at some known point where I'm drawing time from, Greenwich if you're English, Paris if you're French, <laughs> what's the difference in time for midday where that is versus midday where I am? Midday being defined as the maximum the height of the, of the sun. sun. So you can use the angular difference between what you see and what you know is true because of a time statement to calculate your position on the surface of the sphere. Right. So now I've got a new problem. I have to transport the time in London or the time in Paris, some standard time, with me 
in the ship. And I have to keep that time accurate for months. Because if I don't, I'm going to not know where I am. So pendulums have this really great property that as long as you don't move the pendulum and it's swinging in a static location, its behavior is fairly constant. If you put a pendulum on a moving object, its angular momentum is no longer constant. Well, it's worse than that because if you want the pendulum not to wobble and waggle and stuff, you're going to make it a solid rod. So at 30 degrees, it'll be so long. At 32 degrees, it will be a bit longer. Yeah. And, you know, two degrees, it's going to be a lot shorter. So you don't have thermal stability at sea and you don't have functional stability at and, sea. And, and the moving. platform's all over the place. Now, the British government, because navigation was important to the empire at the time, put out this prize going, I need an accurate portable clock that goes in ships and tells the time. And it was actually John Harrison that spent a long time in a number of prototypes to try and get it. And this was the interesting part, that up until then, bigger was better because it matched, I suppose, the crudeness of the metallurgy and tooling and so on, that you could compensate for some of that by simply just making it so big that every time you did it, it was the same. But if you wanted it to be on a ship and portable, pendulums didn't work. You needed to go back to escarpment mechanisms and you needed to make them so small that even if the ship was rocking, it still ticked and tocked at a constant rate. And by the time Harrison got to his marine chronometer, it would fit in an ample pocket. It wasn't large, it was well, I suppose, the early days of computer portables. It was a luggable. So these things are in the museum in London and they are astonishingly beautiful because he enjoyed making things that looked lovely. But aside from being beautiful, they are also astonishingly accurately made. They're precise because they need to be because they're small and therefore the tolerances are a lot smaller. You need to make this thing accurately and precisely. So we're arriving at a convergence because of the need to measure distance accurately of a system that combines the two parts of time in this problem the Swedes are looking at addressing. What is the statutory time of day combined with how accurately have we measured right. a second? We're so getting to that point. Here's a machine that probably does both. So along comes the great railway boom of the 1840s. And at this point, not every train had its own track. So if I'm in Sheffield and I send a train down the line at 10.42, if you're at the other end, God knows what's at the other end of the rail from Sheffield, Birmingham, and you send a train you down... You can probably go from Sheffield to Birmingham, Okay, yes. but you send the train down the track at what you think is a different time, and our two times aren't the same... Not good. Badness is going to happen because we don't all agree. Yeah. A footnote here is that one of the mechanistic ways of limiting use of this single track technology was the idea of a wooden staff being exchanged between drivers that was called a token. And that rather sounds like a token passing <laughs> mechanism for use of a network. But that's another story. But that's another story. But as we increased the speed of 
communication between distant parts. We had an increasing reliance on synchronising the time for all kinds of reasons, including collision avoidance. Yeah. And so the concept of a standard time finally reared its head in the mid-19th century, that now we all needed to agree, at least in the railway system, of what the time was independently of where you are. It's the time because we all have the same wall clock, or at least it moves around the dial at the same positions. So now I need the same second, it moves at the same speed, but I need the same wall clock time because if we don't agree with that, badness happens, okay? And this is the mid-19th century we're emerging into this state. The mid-19th century. And it was recognised pretty early on that we needed almanacs and tables to give us the time of day. And every major country had their own. And interestingly, the US didn't. And this is about the 1870s, 1880s. They were relying on the Brits, had been for the last century. Might have been at war. Happy to use that. Happy, happy to use your time, Almanac. Thank you very much. And in actual fact, the Americans set up the Naval Astronomical Observatory Office, the uh, NAO, to do precisely this, not to rely on the Brits, because who knows, the Brits might have been changing the numbers just to put mud in the eye of the Americans. You needed to have your own time, even then, was a critically important piece of national infrastructure. And it wasn't the definition of a second, it was the time on the wall. Hmm. And so countries were investing in this, right? But you get back into, if you look at the stars and the sun and you look very hard, as did Simon Newcomb in the late 19th century, you get to a rather difficult observation. And I suppose the easiest way to call this is the moon because it's not a perfect frictionless environment. The earth is not going to rotate at the same speed forever. Hundreds of years ago, a day was under 20 hours, hundreds of millions of years ago. Yeah, a little bit longer than just last century. <laughs> yesterday, yesterday was a very short day. A long time The ago. day just flew, George, it just flew by. But the point is, if you're caring about time in a long enough construct, the Earth's rotation is by and no have, means a constant. And you have an accurate enough mechanical timekeeper. Now you're using the mechanical time as the reference. And you look back at the larger universe and you realise that a day is variable. And over time, over swinging around on its axis, if you take the observations long enough or if you're good enough at measuring milliseconds, microseconds, then you start to see that the Earth is slowing down. Hmm. So... We say a day is 86,400 seconds. Good number. Good number. And we start to wonder what is a second as well as what is a day? Because in this thirst for precision, trying to make an escarpment mechanism, something mechanical, oscillate 
to an accuracy of one in a trillion per second. Not going to happen. It's really difficult. It's a challenge. Yeah. And it's probably no coincidence that we emerge into a world that has electricity, radio, radio frequency behaviours, and the emergence of communications coming up from telegraphy, that we actually start to need to answer these questions, what's the frequency? So we've had what's the civil time? Well, we've got that to tolerable accuracy. We've related it to how long is a second? We've now arrived at, well, this is awkward, the period of rotation of the planet isn't is accurate enough. And we've got radio frequencies that we're starting to depend on to run communications well, your between Your frequency people. had better be the same as my frequency or we're not going to talk. So we need to agree on a second pretty accurately now. Yeah. And this led um, in the 50s really is where it came through to a search for something that wasn't astronomical to define a second. A second wasn't an 86,400th of a day because we were starting to appreciate the Earth wasn't really rotating at the same speed all the time. And so they actually retreated into nuclei and, you know, atomic chemistry, in fact, atomic physics. And it was the BIPM, the standards body of the world, that said, you know what a second is? I've got it written down here because you can't remember this stuff. It's 9,192 million, so 9 billion, 631, 770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between two hyperfine levels of the unperturbed ground state of the cesium-133 atom. Well, you know, that's a big number, Jeff, and I can't remember it, but it kind of comes to my mind that there are two ways you get accuracy out of a system. The first one, the one we've been using for the story to this point, is make the thing bigger, look at the angles. The bigger you make it, the finer the degree of accuracy in the angular measurement. So make it big, get good fine grained. The other way of doing it is count a lot of them. Right, and if so you're counting a lot of them, getting up in 9 billion, that's a pretty good number. Look at something that is stable and never, ever changes to one part in a billion in a second. And if you can build an instrument to count at that speed, call that a second. So it wasn't a lucky coincidence that cesium-133 had 9 billion periods. It was, this is really stable. Yeah. You know, this makes quartz oscillators look like, you know, rocks and, and banging the rocks together. This is astonishingly stable and we know how to count them. So we're sitting in a room underneath a fluorescent tube and the basic mechanism here is that this thing is emitting energy that's causing atoms to go from one level of quantum state up to another and then from that level drop, drop down again. again. And that happens at an absolutely amazingly precise frequency if you pump energy in. And so what these guys have done is they've said, well, let's take this atom, cesium. I think they also sometimes use rubidium and they pump radio wave energy into it and they make it jump from one level to another level and then it jumps back down. Right. And that happens like a clock. And so that becomes a clock. And to, I'm like, it's not, our counters aren't that good. And so there's, is it Maser clocks? There's rubidium clocks. Yeah. The reference standard is cesium, 
but you doesn't stop you from building other clocks that operate at a similar, highly stable, accurate mechanism, using it to sort of take the three votes out of four mechanism. Yeah. But the point here is, it's not just that the French say, come and ask us what the time is. BIPM have said, purify cesium, make a radio that works at a frequency you understand. When you can make it emit this signal, you have achieved the frequency signal and you have a second. You can build your own. So it's not cheap. Countries own them. Telephone companies used to own them. Not many others used to own them because it's a bit esoteric and a bit expensive. And back in Colorado, the GPS people have eight of them, you say. I think there are eight scattered around. And they are running these to caucus on a belief of how long a second is. send up a reference time up into space to the GPS satellites for them to broadcast back down as they circle around the Earth. But, Jeff, that's only one of the two signals because the other one is, what is midday? When is the 1st of Uh, January? So who tells them when the 1st of January is? So as we got more accurate in time, we really get more accurate in time, we actually find that the Earth's rotation has a number of things happening. If you stamp your foot on the ground, the Earth's rotation is altered. A little bit. Tiny bit. A gravity wave is probably stronger, you know, a little bit. But more to the point, I suppose, the whole thing about tidal friction, moving ice masses, continental drift, all of these big processes alter the speed of the Earth's rotation. And there is an observatory, a service, in Paris, not Greenwich, called the International Earth Rotation Observatory. (laughs) They're putting axle grease on the hub of the Earth, trying to smooth it. No, so there's a place in Paris. There is a measure. They measure the period of time for the Earth to rotate about its axis. And this is consistently getting slower, right? No. Oh, no. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Really? (laughs) It speeds up. You notice, well, maybe you don't do this very often, but I think the best analogy is an ice skater doing a turnabout. No, I don't do ice skating in Queensland very often, Joe. But when the ice skater has the ice skater's arms out as far as they can, the ice skater rotates at one speed. If they draw their arms in it, the ice skater goes faster. So in other words, the radial momentum is mass and distance. If you pull the mass in to the core of rotation, you actually rotate faster to preserve angular momentum. If you push the mass further out, you rotate slower. So what is the ice on the top of the Himalayas? Well, it's moving. Mass at a distance. Yeah, and it's moving down And as the ice melts, what happens? Yeah, mass shifts. Mass goes down the hill, and oddly enough, the Earth starts, uh, starts to speed up in its rotation. Isn't that bizarre? It is bizarre because the Earth is getting slower. That's a long-term trend. But inside that cycle, the Earth might be getting faster. The Earth is getting faster and slower, depending on what we're doing to the Earth and what the Earth is doing to itself. And the IERS observes this with astonishing accuracy. We're talking basically microseconds per day or per hour, milliseconds per year. But they know. Well, they know. For example, 
the slowest rotation of the Earth since we've been measuring, which is about 1730 when we sort of backtrack through astronomical records, the slowest period was actually in 1903. And in the period from 1903 until about 1940, the Earth was kind of spinning up faster, not slower. That bizarre. So it sort of whiffles and wavers. Now, at one level, doesn't really matter. But at another level, given we are talking computers and we're talking the accuracy of the timestamp on things done in a computer, we're talking about the accuracy of times for things like cryptography or for an audit trail. When did the packet arrive? The packet arrived at this time. I'm sorry, sir, the Earth was running slow that day. What if it arrived a little sooner than you think it did? Oh, that's not good. So I feel like we might have got to a place where this variance in what we think a day is based on rotation doesn't line up very well with this how long a second is based on what a cesium atom is doing. So 1958... In 1958, we effectively had two measures, UT1 and UTC, because we adopted the standard mechanism of a second in that time and then started counting seconds since that time. So UTC we're all familiar with. We understand and that's colloquially these are different. This is UT1. Right. And this makes no factoring of the Earth's rotation. It just said a second is nine million of these oscillations and let's just count them from here on. One, two, three, four. Never goes backwards. Never changes. This is atomic time. Now the Earth's busy going faster, slower, faster, slower. And we have a UTC time, which everyone wants, assume everyone, that midday is the time when the sun is highest in the sky. It's based on the larger macro world, the universe world. Yeah, the world we live in. Where the Earth's rotation is kind of noisy. And you kind of go, well, why do we do this? Why don't we just let atomic time run? Bold decision. Well, interestingly, it's a bold decision, but it does have some implications. Over about a 1,000 years midday would move. So if I the sun would be highest where, in the sky. Where we might be going here, chuck satellites up in the sky, feed them frequency signals based on what you're measuring is the legal definition of a second. These things are in orbits and have orbital mechanics. Their belief in what's going on is probably tracking something closer to UT1 than UTC. But we're using NTP, and NTP is not UT1, it's UTC. Oh. Oh. And so we're actually synchronising in corrected time. Now, what do I mean by corrected time? Well, in 1972, we finally got round to agreeing, took us a while, Yeah. <laughs> that it would be good if atomic time and our universal coordinated time, UTC, agreed roughly. What do you mean by roughly? Okay, let me put a figure on it. They will be within 0.9 of a second all the time. 
No worse than. No worse than. So if the Earth's getting a little bit slower, we need to insert a second in UTC to correct it so that midday is still when the sun is highest in the sky because the Earth's going slower. So the UT1 time, we monotonically increase. No Never corrections changes. happening. Never change. UTC, from 1972 onwards, we're prepared to delay that first bong at midnight just a little bit. Adjust. To keep in no, adjust. Add or subtract. Now, since 1972, we've only ever added... But the decision allows both? Yes. Oh dear, that's not monotonically increasing. You could repeat the well, same I, I, time. I, I did tell you the Earth is rotating faster. One minute needs to be 59 seconds long, not 60, if we want to compensate. But this means I now cannot guarantee that a file stamp has only ever occurred once. So. Let's sort of go through computing history since about 1972. Because in 1972, networks were pretty rudimentary. And we were really only talking about this small group of esoteric folk, the timekeepers, the lords of time. And they agreed that they would change the clock at the time when it was least disruptive. And so they agreed amongst themselves that there were two times of the year when they were allowed to make a sec a minute 61 seconds long, or in theory, 59 seconds long. And that critical minute was the last minute of December 31 of the year and the last minute of the end of June, June 30 of every year. Because we're all asleep, no one would notice. Yep. And there was about a change every one to two years. And no one noticed. And at that point, the change was always add one. Well, the change has been always add one so far. The Earth is generally slowing down since 72, right? Um, but like I said, there are some interesting periods. Between 1972 and 1982, there were, um, I think, about eight of them. And oddly enough, they were circulated around the world with a fax from... <laughs> the coordinated committee of the BIPN, I think it's called the CIGM, that sent around a fax to all of the lords of time around the world saying, you will add a second on this time, on this date. Faxes, yeah, right. And we started to build networks. And interestingly, as we were building them and as we were started to working inside that time protocol in the 80s and 90s, the rate of slowing down was itself slowing down. But these leap seconds were less and less frequent. At the same time, we were building better infrastructure and we were relying more and more on time. And it's even the little things. In my code, I want to sleep for a second. Well, let's set an alarm in one second's time and then read the time of day. Well, I expect the time of day will have changed by one second. But if you're in this magic window and you're operating in that way, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It reads the same. And how often will that get exercised as a bug? Well, once every few years when we do a time change. 
If when we were was... only talking about 100 computers in the world, you could probably say, let's not do things across that magic one day. But we now have two to three billion people online all the time. Your mobile phone, mine, it all has the same clock stuff. Somebody somewhere is depending on having the time work correctly across that magic interval. Now, there was something else. There was a time correction in about 1999, and the next one was 2006. So across seven years, time was constant, and an awful lot of code was written that had no idea that the time would ever change. It had never been excised to never understand. Never been exercised. Yep, never. never. Never, ever, ever. And then there was the leap second from hell. And I seem to remember the world's airline reservation system, Sabre, died. And it didn't just die when everyone was there looking. It died midnight UTC, December 31, when everyone else was having a fine old time. Welcome 2006, brand new year. Oh dear, my computer's crashed. So we all woke up with a hangover and couldn't get on our planes. <laughs> Basically, yes. And it was sort of a disaster. So it was around this time that Google, for instance, said they didn't like the idea of a sudden abrupt change and actually started talking about smearing time. Well, what it actually turned out was if you left the time to do this, there are two times in the year when the minute will actually have 61 seconds to correct UTC, then all the code has to change. You, know, you have to change everybody's code. Yeah. And... Big burden. Oh, impossible. Trillions. I don't know how many lines of code are out there running, but, you know, beggars belief. So Google hit upon a very neat idea called time smearing. And what they worked out, and it's kind of true, is that even though computer processors oscillate at billions of times a second, five gigahertz CPUs, etc., our code has much coarser timing. Sleep for a second sleep for a hundredth of a second. But it never gets down to the billionth of a second. Sleep for a billionth of a second. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's inside the chips. There are frequencies like that. Up at the instruction set level, it's a coarser grain. And, and your code is meant to run on all kinds of computers running at all kinds of clock speed. So a normal coder would not code at that level of granularity on time. So, said Google, cleverly, why don't I smear this change across, I don't know, a day. Just add a little bit here what? and a little bit well, there. Well, even if I add one, one 86,400th of a second every second. In a day, I'll have done the second. I'll have done the second, but you'll never have noticed. Now, I can do it as a millisecond over a few hours, or I can change the, the amount of time I change and the frequency of change. So if I do a millisecond change over, say, six hours, I change every fifth millisecond or every fifth second. By the time midnight comes around, I've done my second, but the clock hasn't really changed. It's just drifted away from a second for a period of time. And UTC is now aligned with UT1 and we're all happy. Yeah. And smearing has become pretty common. But interestingly, the leap seconds have become less common. Since 2006, there've only been five. 
So you mentioned this critical meeting in the 50s and also the 1972 meeting. The little reading that I've done suggests that we agreed is perhaps airbrushing over fairly substantial differences of opinion about what should be happening in time. Well, all of this happens in the World Radio Communications Conference, who, for reasons, have sort of picked themselves up as the prime body to apply the standards of time, right? So while there are rules around keeping UTC within 0.9 of a second of UT1, there's another conversation to be had about every time we do a leap second, things break. Why are we doing this? No one has sundials of this precision. Do we really care that midday is when the sun is highest in the sky? Who's checking? The astronomers have been using UT1 forever. Yeah. They've migrated away in their search for precision. So who uses UTC? And if you add in the importance now of orbital mechanics on telecommunications because of the LEO satellite explosion, Starlink, all of these things, there are going to be many, many objects we depend on that fundamentally are more likely to adhere to UT1 models of time because that's the reality of their orbital relativities to each other. Right. It's not a function of civil belief in rotation of the Earth. These things are floating in space doing what they do. So no one cares about UTC. It's a piece of historical baggage, argue the proponents of one side. And America is there, a number of Western countries. I haven't got the full list. But they've been talking about this forever. Yeah. Shall we drop the leap second and just let it rip? Just stick to UT1. UTC is locked against UT1. A second is nine billion of these oscillations. Let's just count. Let's not add and subtract silly seconds at various times when no one's looking, midnight in December 31. Let's just let it rip, right? Don't adjust. And there's another group that says time is self-relative to the Earth and the Sun. That's the lived human experience. The lived human experience. The Sun is highest at the sky in midday. This is time. UTC, in a world of increasing precision, should preserve those human values. Yeah, I mean, none of us are going to live to be a thousand years old, but the fact remains, it would be truly unfortunate if in a thousand years time, midday was when the sun was very slightly off its peak. We don't want to arrive there. So way, way back in, let me, let me look at this, 2003, the august meeting of the World Radio Telecommunications Conference decided that we won't make a final decision until 2022 to change the radio time-based signal, but we'd certainly like to think that by 2022, UTC would not include leap second corrections. It would be locked against UT1. And that new time signal we just called T1. T1 by 2022. That was a year ago, right? 
Yeah. And that obviously didn't happen. So they didn't quite have the courage to make it emerge as an outcome, but the problem hasn't gone away, has it? Well, in years since, for example, November 2015, they met and they decided not to decide until at least they keep on deciding that the decision's too hard and they cannot resolve the differences in these arguments. The computing and networking side say, this is a billion dollar, maybe higher problem. Stop futzing with the time base. Yeah, if we could stop having to perform the adjustment, operational states of being embedded in computers and networks and related systems would get a lot simpler. It would, and code wouldn't need to be refactored and rewritten. We wouldn't need to be combing back over 30-year-old code in languages that has everyone forgotten to see how they handle time. So navigation systems, everything that relies on time, the argument is if we can just forget about these leap seconds, yeah. everything that's working today will keep on working and the stuff that may not have worked in a leap second, we don't need to worry about anymore. So we're at a deep dive down into the basis finish, of what time is. I'll just finish this off with a final decision, which is another reason why we're talking about it today. Back in November 2015, when they decided not to decide, they decided that the decision was going to be made at the November 2023 meeting of the World Radio Communications Conference in approximately three to four months from yeah. when we record this. Now, all I can say in those five months is get hold of your popcorn yeah. <laughs> and look. <laughs> it will be fun. So the Swedish decision is kind of off to one side. They're not really players in this argument between UT1, UTC, T1, but they are in the position of saying time matters. And NTP, the protocol that's the informal, I send you, you send me, we cohere to our delay, we build up a societal vision of what time is. You said they're using NTS, NTS. not NTP. So what's the difference? The difference is actually easy in many ways and slightly more complex. Easy insofar as instead of sending packets in the clear, where I just write down the time in an agreed standard format, binary value of the time, send it to you in the clear, anyone could intercept that packet and change the value on the fly. Right. So someone in the middle who you don't like can play with your mind by playing with your NTP signal. So it's a great protocol for honest players, but we don't live in that we world. We don't live in an honest internet. We live in an internet that's constantly under adverse pressure. It's toxic. So the S so component is the secure component. You add basically TLS. You add encryption and a bit of authentication. Is that really you, time server number three? Yes, it's really me. Oh, phew. Here is my time and let me encrypt this and send it to you. You do the same thing back to me. Now, in looking at the delay from you to me, which is really what matters, I now have to factor in to some extent the decryption delay at my end. Because depending on when, in fact, I've got to add in both delays. Because you would generate a timestamp, encrypt it, send it to me, I decrypt it and I get a timestamp. 
But again, those would tend towards semi-constants within the limit Correct. of accuracy. This is, why, this is why NTS works. Yeah. It, it's just more compute, but it's if you've got better computers, and these days we do, we can do this in a constant time that you can factor into the protocol. So with the use of, I don't know, NVIDIA graphics cards, any kind of decent processing capability, I can do this encryption easy at a predictable speed so I can factor that in as part of the delay from you, the time source, to me, the time slave. And they've taken a decision that this is no longer a minor public benefit that's just done best effort delivery. It's become part of the utility function of what a network right. is inside their economy. Most developed countries do have their national laboratory of standards and they run their own, I don't know, clone of the international standard. A small country like Australia has a standards body and they have their own reference weight, reference length and reference time. But aside from having time locked up, we know the time over here in the lab, we've never thought much about distributing time. We don't think about distributing weight, actually. Hmm. We just don't. We have these calibrated measurement devices and a manufacturer is meant to go up to the lab, play homage, bow three times at the door and calibrate their measurement instrument against the standard, but then go away and, and use that. The strange Time thing is, though, when we had a national telco and a single monopoly telco, there probably was a, a clock beat that was being asserted by Telecom Australia yeah. to keep all the switches aligned. And when we had a national transmission authority back in analogue TV days, they probably had pretty good clocks because decoding that signal right. depended on clock signal. But we've moved away from that. To, we use GPS. We use GPS and we use Why MPEG not? streams no, and no, they're, we, they're drifting. For time, no, for time, we use GPS. So everyone who's doing coordination of synchronous links and synchronous radio services is now no, using GPS. I wouldn't say GPS. everyone, but in a world of economics, GPS is a million, billion times cheaper than running your own farm of atomic clocks that so you need to have one to compare the two. One is not good enough. Yeah. And so the relative cost of just sticking an antenna out the door and measuring time off GPS is so much cheaper. Well, for a while, APNIC had a RIPE NCC generated card. It was a PCI card that went into a rack-mounted computer, connected to a GPS antenna, pulled that clock signal out. We, but it wasn't telling us UT1 or UTC. It was providing highly accurate pulse per second. And that was fed into an NTP service that was merely saying, I have a belief in time. But was, getting, but was getting fed time adjustment yeah. correction signals that originated really with the CIGM, the BIPM and the International Earth Rotations. Now, the, it was synchronising the wall clock. Yeah. So the out result of all of that was, this is the time of day, believe me. Yeah. And it had got to the point, because of satellites and so on, that everyone could do this, that a small entity like APNIC was able to offer that as a service. But any hostile party with a bit of a radio transmitter... Oh, they could interfere with this. ...could interfere with this. And it's kind of, if you're a government, if you're running this lab, if you're doing this, why would you move to someone else's satellite? And this is this whole strategic risk. You know, why do the Americans want their own almanac and not rely on the Brits? 
why is China and Russia and the Europeans with their own constellation of global positioning and time services up there? Because you just can't trust anyone in this world. And the Swedes have made a decision as a public utility, they're going to expect that, there to be that, a reference time available. That isn't disruptable. And that was the key sort of bit that they're doing. Yeah. So they're not just saying, go and use Galileo, it's all just fine. What they're really saying is, if you really need to rely on time, we're going to deliver it down a conductor. You know, a fibre cable is going to be secure. You've got to pay for it if you really want accurate time, 30 microseconds per day or something really accurate, we'll do that. If you just want the time, this service over here is not quite as finely grained. It's over NTS. It's free, and anyone on the planet can use it. They set it up about a little over a year ago, and they're getting now <laughs> more than two and a half million hits per hour from time slaves all over the world picking up secure time from Sweden, amongst other places. And so in some ways it's kind of a hit because secure, stable, non-disruptable time, in other words, not brought down from a satellite, which is disruptable, but brought over the wires from multiple sources, is actually important. Yeah, it's a common good. It's a public utility function we might all want to reflect on. Right. So where does this go? Um, over the last 60 or 70 odd years, we've kind of been happy with dividing time into nine billionth units of a second, do we need to go higher? Now, computer processors actually haven't got much faster in the last 20 years. We've maxed out at a five gigahertz clock speed, haven't we? Well, oscillators that oscillate at a higher frequency are actually called radiators, not oscillators. Yeah. And it becomes a radiation waveguide. It's no longer a frequency that sits in a conductor. And you really got to wonder, as I do from time to time, not that I lose sleep over it, where can this go and is there any point? Now, it's very hard to tell if we need ever finer time, ever finer micro nano detail. It's very hard to tell. But our current technologies, including silicon, seem to be stabilising at that billionth of a second level order of magnitude. And what we've got has certainly been stable for a few decades. The planes still stay in the sky, the trains don't crash, well they do, but that's a different problem. <laughs> you know, security works, time-based mechanisms work. We can all roughly agree, not only is it Wednesday, but you know, it's 10.52 in the morning, dit, dit, dit. And in November, if they have the courage to come to a final closure, we might agree, why don't we remove the risk of adjusting this to try and get one second accuracy into civil time when we can actually colloquially know to perform that adjustment, but just agree to keep the computers on something that just counts forward. And in my final comment, to a Brit. Ha! Greenwich actually played no role in this. The only part that the British observatory has in this is that's the longitude 
that UTC and UT1, the epoch point, is based on. But that's it. Yep. They're not part of the standards body. They don't do any other role. They don't provide reference time. They're just that point on the globe that says, this is the place of midday that we all agree on. And uh, tous nos amis en Paris. They control everything else. Merci beaucoup <laughs> pour tous les services. Mais oui, merci beaucoup. Thank you, Jeff. That's been fantastic. Au revoir, George. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time. <music>